Indigenous people are overrepresented in the prison system in Canada. We know that incarceration has immediate and long-term health effects. For Indigenous peoples in Canada, high rates of incarceration lead to serious health consequences. But incarceration also feeds into manifold and complex social determinants of poor health among Indigenous peoples. Systemic problems have been noted, yet identified solutions are not necessarily being implemented. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Joining me today to discuss this important problem are two of the authors of a commentary published in CMAJ on the topic. Dr. Devinder Singh is a recent graduate from the Public Health and Preventive Medicine Residency Program at the University of Manitoba and is currently in the middle of a law degree. Dr. Marsha Anderson is Cree Anishinaabe, with roots going to the Norway House Cree Nation and Peguis First Nation in Manitoba. She practices both internal medicine and public health as a medical officer of health with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. They co-authored the commentary along with Sarah Prouse. Welcome to both of you. Great, thank you for having us. Marsha, first let's talk about the concept of over-incarceration of Indigenous people in Canada. What do you mean by that? So much like we think about when people are overrepresented in health statistics, where if things were randomly distributed or were fair, that you might expect the same proportion of people who are incarcerated as the proportion of the population. So on average in Canada, about 4% of the adult population self-identify as First Nations, Métis, or Inuit, or what we'll collectively refer to as Indigenous. Um, however, in 2016-2017, they made up uh, 28% of admissions to provincial or territorial correctional services and 27% for federal correctional services. So that is roughly about seven times what we would expect if things were either randomly distributed or fair. I'll also note that that rate is even higher for Indigenous youth. Uh, and so Indigenous youth make up about 46% of admissions to correctional services, while making up only 8% of the Canadian youth population. So that is a, a summary of what we would describe as over-representation or over-incarceration. Those statistics are staggering. Is the problem worse in some provinces than in others? Yes, it is, Kirsten. So on average in Canada as a whole, the rate of Indigenous adult incarceration is about seven times more likely than it is for uh, non-Indigenous incarceration. But in provinces like Manitoba, Indigenous adults are 18 times more likely to be incarcerated than non-Indigenous adults. So it is unevenly distributed across the country. And what's behind this inequity in incarceration rates in Canada? Yeah, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released its final reports in 2015, uh, Call to Action 18 specifically asked us to understand the current gaps that exist in Indigenous health as a result of previous government policy. And I'd really like your listeners to be able to link that to this quote from uh, Marie Sinclair, who was the lead commissioner on the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry in 1991, as well as the lead commission for the commissioner for the TRC. But in the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, one of the things he said is a long history of discrimination and social inequality that has impoverished Aboriginal people and consigned them to the margins of Manitoban society uh, were the were the root causes of the overrepresentation that was being seen. And so we can actually see 
that the root causes of the health gaps for Indigenous people in Canada are the same root causes of this over-representation or over-incarceration of Indigenous peoples. So this is things like the intergenerational trauma from colonial harmful policies such as residential school experiences or the 60s scoop, policies that really seek to disrupt kinship and community connections and also undermine access to really important positive health determinants like connection to culture and connection to language. We've seen the entrenchment of poverty um, and this is related to things like dispossession from land uh, and unequal ability to participate fully in economic development or employment over time that was uh, restricted in earlier decades as part of the Indian Act uh, and currently can happen related to things like racism and hiring practices. It's rooted in things like unequal access to education. And so, for example, the well-known chronic underfunding of First Nations education that results in 20 to 30 percent less funding per student compared to students who are attending provincial schools. So those uh, are some of the underlying social determinants that affect over-incarceration that many of your listeners would be familiar with as also being social determinants of health status. And then I'll turn it over to Devinder to talk about some of the racism in the justice system that layers on top of that and furthers the over-incarceration. Thanks, Marsha. So Marsha started out with a quote from, at the time, uh, Judge Sinclair, and now, of course, uh, Senator Sinclair, and another one of his quotes from the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, he said, many opportunities for subjective decision-making exist within the justice system, and there are few checks on the subjective criteria being used to make those decisions. We believe that part of the problem is that while Aboriginal people are the objects of such discretion within the justice system, they do not benefit from discretionary decision-making, and that even the well-intentioned exercise of discretion can lead to inappropriate results because of cultural or value differences. So we see uh, that manifest in different ways in the justice system. Um, and one clear example is the, in how bail is decided, for example, well, once you're actually already into the justice system and, and interacting with it. So one of the main uh, determinants that decides if a person who's charged will get bail or not is uh, dependent on their employment status, how much income they can uh, contribute towards deposit for bail, their connections to that immediate place. So depending on where they're charged, where if their family connections are in a different part of the province or the country, that might lead the judge to think that the person would be less likely to show up to another appointment at the court. Um, and on it goes with, you know, your education credentials and so on. So there's lots of points at which discretionary decision making is used within the justice system. But the factors that Marsha talked about earlier that are the upstream determinants have a negative impact on the points that the people within the justice system use to make those decisions. It's interesting that you talk about these quotes from a 1991 report, which means that these things were identified through 25 to 30 years ago, and we're still experiencing problems in this regard. Yes, and it's not just that these reports were uh, written about in 1991, but there's been a continuous publication of reports, both 
from within the system and outside of the system uh, that have come to these same conclusions. For example, in 1996, there was examining Aboriginal corrections in Canada, which is on the uh, Public Safety Canada website. There was, of course, also in that same year, the um, Aboriginal People's Commission of Canada. Then there was the Ikabuchi report from Ontario in 2013, which talked about uh, the way juries are selected and had, well, it had a provincial focus. It was still applicable to other provinces and territories. Uh, and then, as Marsha had mentioned earlier, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission report, which came out in 2015. So those are just some of the uh, official reports that are made um, at the request of the system. And then there's also uh, countless other stories like those collected by Elizabeth Comack in her recent book, Coming Back to Jail, where she talks to women who have been incarcerated and who were currently incarcerated at the time that uh, she interviewed them about their uh, life and their trajectory to being incarcerated uh, and uh, another book by Elizabeth Comack and others, uh, Indians Wear Red, which which talks about the factors that that lead someone to become involved in the justice system and some of the reasons for the entrenchment of uh, this kind of cycle of, of involvement in the justice system. Uh, specifically within Winnipeg and Manitoba, but also likely applicable in other provinces. And if I could just add one thing to this concept of inaction, despite decades of knowledge of problems and where the problems lie. Uh, in the wake of the verdict um, in the trial for the murder of Colton Bushy, I had done a couple of presentations looking at the impact of institutional racism on Indigenous people's health. Uh, and de defining institutional racism as differential access to the goods, services, and opportunities of society by race with access to justice as one of those services of society. And one of the key mechanisms by which that institutional racism is carried out is by inaction in the face of need. So in discussing one of the, at a high level, one of the major challenges that was reported on in the in this trial for the murder of Colton Bushy was the perceived exclusion of any Indigenous appearing people from the jury. And I shared a quote actually from the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry in 1991 uh, that referred to the trial for the murder of Helen Betty Osborne decades earlier, in which the exact same problem was identified, the exclusion of Indigenous appearing people from the jury. And so over decades, knowing how this has impacted Indigenous people's access to justice, but in itself the inaction in response to need uh, being a form of racism that continues on this inequity. In your article, you talk about years of life lost to incarceration. What do you mean by this? And how does it relate to the concept that many physicians will understand of years of life lost to disability or early death? So we're referring specifically to the amount of time that the average Indigenous person spends incarcerated, either in the provincial or federal system, and how much of the average person's life is essentially lost due to spending time in that system. Uh, and while some people might not ag agree with the comparison of time spent incarcerated versus the traditional use of years of life lost to 
premature death from different health conditions like heart disease, stroke, cancer, and so on. Uh, I think that reading some of the experiences of their time in prison and in jail, especially uh, in the works of people like Elizabeth Comack and, and others, and listen to the impact that incarceration has had at the personal level on their personal health, and then on their connections with their family, with their community, and uh, the impact that incarceration has had on Indigenous people uh, on the whole, then I think that it is a reasonable comparison to discuss years of life lost to incarceration and years of life lost to premature death from those common conditions like heart disease and cancer. And just to add to that, what I would pick up on is how this over-incarceration at a population level actually detracts from Indigenous people's right to the highest attainable standard of health. And what we would like to bring in here is a concept that's often roughly translated to health, uh, and it's an Anishinaabe term, mino bumatsuin. And I'd like to acknowledge and thank some of the elders that I've had the opportunity to learn from, including Margaret Lavely and Dave Cushane Jr., both of whom happen to be from Saging First Nation in Manitoba. But this concept of Mino Bumatsuin, uh, or living a good life, living the good life, has to do with uh, being with and in good relationship with your family and community and fulfilling your roles in your family community, uh, living in harmony with the land and uh, being good stewards of the land and fulfilling your own personal purpose through service to others. And so when we think of health in this uh, Anishinaabe teaching framing of Minopamatsuen, I think it's quite easy to see how being incarcerated really interrupts the opportunity to that. And so that's the other way that I would look at it, that it, it's really at a population level interrupting this highest attainable standard of health, which for Anishinaabe, First Nations, or broader Indigenous people, we can understand through this teaching of Mino Pumatsuen. That really helps me to understand it, because when you talk about at a population level, I mean, that's what we talk about with heart disease and cancer, and it's it's sort of rates at a population level that create the burden of the disease. So does years of life lost to incarceration also add to health burdens acquired from being in prison? Uh, yes, it does. So in our article, we only talk about the specific amount of time that people have spent incarcerated and comparing those years of life lost just while incarcerated to those other conditions that we often uh, talk about for years of life lost. So, for example, for Indigenous men, they lose approximately 76 times more years of life lost to incarceration than to cancer, approximately 53 times more years of life lost to incarceration than to heart disease and stroke, and approximately nine times more years of life lost than to injuries. And uh, for Indigenous women, the comparable numbers are eight and a half times the years of life lost to, to heart disease and stroke, uh, five times the number of years of life lost to cancer, and 1.6 times the years of life lost to injuries. Um, so that's just the direct amount of time that people spend incarcerated. However, incarceration also has other effects on health. Uh, both directly and indirectly, and which range, you know, from uh, increases in rates of uh, infection and mental health 
disease uh, all the way to death with significant increase in the rate of overdose death and suicide, especially in the first two weeks after release from incarceration. So the effects that incarceration has on individuals' health and on the health of the population uh, go far beyond just the amount of time that these individuals are spending incarcerated. So incarceration can directly affect health, and it can also add to or worsen social determinants of ill health. Can you tell me a little bit more about how social determinants of health are impacted when an Indigenous person is incarcerated? Mm -hmm. The impact on the social determinants of health are for the individual themselves, but also for their family. Uh, And so I'll just mention, as far as the family goes, as one point, that parental incarceration significantly increases the risk of involvement with child welfare systems. Uh, And those in and of themselves are known to have negative impact on Indigenous peoples' health and outcomes. Um, The other few that uh, we would like to mention, first of all, uh, upon release from incarceration, how having a criminal record impacts your employability. Uh, And so following incarceration, chances of being called for a job interview, hired, or promotions after being hired all go down. And so one of the statistics we were able to pull is that if you have a criminal record, you're two or three times less likely to be called back for a second interview or offered a job. And that effect is even larger for racialized groups. It's also been shown that even for somebody who gets a job, the rate of increases in wages So how often or how much of a raise you get is also lower with a criminal record. There's also significant impacts uh, on housing. So if you are homeless or unstably housed, then being recently incarcerated makes it less likely that you're going to be able to find stable housing for at least two years. And then there's a contribution to family breakdown. So for those who are married, incarceration significantly increasing the risk of separation or divorce. And so these are just a few of the ways that incarceration can directly impact the social determinants of health. And then unfortunately, that leads into the cycle or the in and out of incarceration because of this, since um, unemployment and unstable housing themselves are risk factors for incarceration. Now, Devinder, in your article, you mentioned the recent and not so recent reports that have highlighted systemic racism in the justice system. And we've talked about those in this podcast already. And those reports made some important recommendations. Can you tell us about these? Yes. You know, there's a number of recommendations in each of those reports, but they essentially often come down to the issues that Marsha's already talked about, which is addressing the root causes of involvement or interaction with the justice system, like poverty and uh, education, uh, housing, and uh, and then some of the direct policy impacts that have occurred over time, such as the intergenerational trauma from colonialism and residential schools that are highlighted so in depth in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report and the report for the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. So those are the main summary of the the highlights that these reports discuss, but they also do go into the specifics of actually once you're 
involved in the justice system, the ways that the justice system can go against indigenous people uh, from the decision about who gets charged to uh, the decision about whether that person gets bail, how much time that person spends with their lawyer, how long their sentences for if they are found guilty or plead guilty to an offense, uh, and then uh, how much of that sentence they actually spend in prison or jail compared to uh, introduction to community and community programming. So, but the main points of many of these reports are that something needs to be done to address those root causes that Marsha talked about to actually prevent involvement in the justice system in the first place. Marsha, in your view, how should we be addressing this problem going forward? So I think before we talk about how we should address the problem, it's important that we talk about why we need to address this problem. And the first thing that I will say is there is a human rights-based imperative around fairness and justice for us to address this problem. So over-incarceration impacts the right of Indigenous people to the highest attainable standard of health. And the racism in the justice system that contributes to that violates the right to be free from racism. These are enshrined human rights that everybody has, um, but they also are specifically echoed in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights to Indigenous Peoples, uh, which Canada has committed to fully implementing within our own legislative frameworks. So the first reason is that rights-based justice and fairness reason. The second reason that I'll mention is that both incarceration and the downstream effects of these health gaps and the resulting health care costs give us a significant financial imperative. So if we think particularly around the sustainability of the healthcare system, for example, uh, Indigenous health gaps as well as Indigenous health care gaps are both very expensive for the system. So there is a financial imperative. Now, as we've mentioned multiple times already, the social determinants of involvement with the justice system are the same social determinants of health gaps or of poor health care outcomes down the road. So the opportunity is for us to work in partnership with justice in addressing some of these upstream determinants because of the way that they will positively impact the sustainability and costs in both these systems down the road. And so some of those priorities that we've already mentioned are income and poverty, for example. So how do we address income inequality and how do we reduce the experience of poverty, uh, which is, again, higher amongst Indigenous people than it is in the general population? I won't mention any specifics because economic policy probably beyond the scope of this this podcast, but for sure addressing income inequality and poverty has to be part of the solution. I would again mention the right to equality of opportunity for education. Uh, as well as how protective education is, both from justice system involvement and from a health perspective. So ensuring equality of opportunity through fair and equal funding for First Nations, Métis and Inuit people, regardless of where their education is being received from. The third thing I will mention, access to safe and affordable housing, whether you are urban, rural or remote. These are just three examples of upstream determinants of health that if we partnered with justice on meaningfully uh, addressing, we would see both decreased involvement in the justice system as well as improved health status for Indigenous peoples overall. 
And then the other thing that I just want to mention in terms of a potential partnership between health and justice is how we could use our measurement systems uh, in order to measure progress moving forward. So right now, both within healthcare and within justice, we have limited ability to measure uh, our performance by First Nations, Métis, or Inuit status. Uh, which means that if you wanted to do an initiative to, say, measure how an intervention targeted at monitoring how much time lawyers spend with Indigenous people compared to non-Indigenous people, or if you wanted to do an intervention that looked at impact of length of sentences for Indigenous people compared to non-Indigenous people, right now the data capacity would not exist within the justice system, just like it wouldn't exist for a targeted healthcare quality improvement project for Indigenous people within our healthcare system. If there was a way for us to work together, learn lessons together around best practices for the collection of self-identified First Nations, Métis, and Inuit status, both of our systems would increase in our ability to see the problems that we have where Indigenous people are being treated unequally or unfairly and thus having unequal impacts to design and target interventions and then to measure their impacts. So the ability to use a quality improvement framework, for example, both in health and in justice, would increase. Um, and then we would know if we're making progress on our shared goals of equality of opportunity and of health status for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people in this country. If there is one take-home message that you would want listeners of this podcast to know, what would that be? So uh, the takeaway that I would would leave people with is that the over-incarceration of Indigenous peoples is a public health problem. And the both parallels within the justice system, as well as the interplay between the justice system and health care, ultimately results in significant impacts for, for the health of Indigenous peoples. And I think it's vitally important at this point in time that we understand that fixing this is a matter of shared responsibility, that we all have a role to play, and that as we make progress on this, that also the benefits will be shared amongst the Canadian population. So it's important for all of us that we address racism in the justice system and that we address these underlying social determinants, because ultimately the benefits are for everybody. I would just say that for the individual person, find the thing that makes the most sense to you about maybe how you can do your little piece to shift the discussion and shift the action towards system change for more equal access to the various social determinants of health. Well, thank you both for joining me today. This has been an, a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having us, Kirsten. Yeah, thank you so much both for publishing the commentary, but also giving us a chance to have some dialogue further about it. I've been speaking with two of the authors of a commentary published in CMAJ, Dr. Devinder Singh, graduate from the Public Health and Preventive Medicine Residency Program at the University of Manitoba, is midway through his law degree. Dr. Marsha Anderson is Cree Anishinaabe. She practices both internal medicine and public health as a medical officer of health with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. To read the commentary they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>